0: This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly
1: dividing the word of truth. Welcome to The Bible Line. If you are a new listener, for the next hour we'll be taking people's questions as they've been studying God's word. Sometimes there's an issue that surfaces in terms of interpretation or application or maybe just a challenge in your life and you're looking for scriptural direction, if we can be of help by God's grace, we will. The phone number, again, locally is 843-525-1859, 525-1859. Or if it's easier for you to remember, the 877-TOLL-FREE number is the call letters, WAGP 980. Or if you like, you can always email us here directly into the studio the email address is tbl, standing for the Bible line, tbl at, again, the call letters, wagp.net. And when you call, uh, if you want to go on the air live, we always give preference to live callers. Or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question and they'll shoot it into the studio here, and we'll take it that way as well. All right, Rick, I think we're ready to go ahead and jump
0: in with both feet. Indeed, Pastor. Uh, last week at the end of the program, we had a question about medical marijuana, which you addressed in detail, but uh, we had a follow-up from an individual who said, um, yes, Dr. Brogy had mentioned that uh, uh, the word pharmacia, which uh, is witchcraft, and that um, you know, you addressed the fact that marijuana alters the mind. This individual wants to know, how does how do you address legal prescription medications that may alter one's mind, like opioids?
1: Well, the original question that came last week was in reference to whether it was wrong for a Christian to use pot. And uh, I addressed that issue first. I didn't address the issue of medical marijuana, but it's certainly worthy of our consideration when we consider uh, this fact, especially since in South Carolina we are reaching a point where it probably, in this legislative session, it's going to be addressed. And if not, the way we're structured in our state, uh, it's a two-year session. So if a new bill is introduced this year, it's got two years potentially uh, to get through the whole process. But I think it will probably happen before June. And so as Christians, we need to be in tuned in terms of whether or not, uh, where we go on this pot issue. Now, last week I said, you know, why shouldn't we use pot? And I gave a number of reasons. Number one, it's still against federal law, and it's still against South Carolina law. Of course, something being legalized doesn't make it correct. It's legal to uh, kill your baby on its birthday in some states. That doesn't make it right. It's legal based on Roe v. Wade up until nine months for, quote-unquote, the health of the mother that is ill-defined, uh, to kill your baby. So again, that doesn't make it right. If, if life begins at conception, as the Bible teaches, viability is not a test, and, and certainly uh, we follow a higher law. We must obey God rather than men, but we are called to submit to governing authorities, and right off, we are told that it is against the law in this state, and it's against federal law. And this is going to be an issue because you've got state laws that are going against federal laws, and those usually result in Supreme Court issues. In addition, I argued, well, it's not wise to use pot as a Christian or as an unsaved person because there are clear links between mental illness and those who smoke pot not to mention it's been demonstrated medically by the American Medical Association that it deadens the brain. It results in, in an inability to concentrate. It results in laziness. And look, I, I know potheads who have used it for years and years and years, and that's their personality. Uh, it's, not, it's not a profitable thing. Not to mention it is addictive. It is a highly addictive drug. And it's certainly a gateway drug. If you ask any police officer if they are in favor of legalizing pot on any level, medical marijuana, recreational, they'll tell you no because it is a gateway drug. And beyond that, of course, the carcinogenics in pot are, are, you know, terrible. They create emphysema and uh, COPD and lung cancer and all kinds of things. Now, medical marijuana... Slightly different issue, but I think a lot of the same principles apply. Uh, Again, those states have legalized medical marijuana. It's still illegal according to federal law. Again, this is going to be a Supreme Court issue, I think, at some point. Uh, But still, uh, it's against the law in South Carolina where I'm speaking, and we're to submit to governing authorities. So even if you could get, quote-unquote, pot for some medical use, you'd be breaking the law. And uh, there are many alternatives. But Apart from that, I think there are many reasons why we shouldn't legalize even medical marijuana. Uh, number one, smoking marijuana, and that's many times how it is administered, not just in drops and so forth. Uh, it it uh, damages the bronchial passages of your body that allow you to fight off different fungi and bacteria. Uh, clearly, um, one study indicates that it raises your risk of heart attack. Uh, if you smoke marijuana, uh, it quadruples, uh, one English study, your, your potentiality of getting a heart attack. According to the Mayo Clinic, it actually can damage your DNA and it heightens your risk of cancer. So um, just like tobacco smoke uh, has carcinogens in it that create problems with your lungs and your body, they're 50 to 70% higher, according to the Mayo Clinic, in, in marijuana. So that's not wise. Um, there was a survey that was done in Baltimore last year. There was over a 1,000, I think it was 1,023 emergency room trauma patients that had come in, and 38% were under the influence of marijuana. And of that 38%, of those were under the um, use of so-called medical marijuana. So, you know, there's real problems here. Uh, God tells us that, you know, we're not to be mastered by anything. And the fact is, is that 90% of all marijuana use in the United States is recreational. And the people who want to make it medically acceptable are evil people. They're just evil people. They're lost people. You shouldn't get your cues from lost people. They're evil, lost people who need to be born again and saved from the coming wrath of God. They're tools of the evil one to move us from first acceptance with medical marijuana to recreational marijuana. And again, the Christians are hypocrites here. Many evangelical Christians, they say, well, I ask them, why do you drink? Well, it helps me to relax. You know, I have a glass of wine in it relaxes me. Well, if you need a glass of wine to relax, there's something wrong in your relationship with the Lord. Is not Christ sufficient to satisfy the deepest need of your life? Most of the time, it's not, quote, unquote, they want to relax. They want to get a buzz. And listen, if you use that rationale, it's just as easy to use it in terms of medical marijuana or recreational marijuana. Why not? Why not smoke a joint? It helps you to relax so it's, it's an evil road that is not certainly helpful to walk down, and it is different, to answer your question in a pointed way, from other drugs that are used as painkillers. Again, I, I think it's well-proven, well-documented. I, I, I've read a number of um, case studies that have been done, and I certainly am not convinced that even, quote-unquote, TLC in drop form or tablet form is advantageous over other methods that are used to control seizures and a number of other problems. But again, lay that aside for just a second. There is a difference between giving someone a drug to relieve pain and giving a person a drug to give him a high. There's a huge difference, and so when God forbids, for instance, the use of strong drink in Proverbs 31, and this is where the biblical, I think. Uh, principle uh, gets its genesis from. Uh, God tells us not to use strong drink, and the exception he gives is with a dying, despairing man. It's actually a Hebraism. There's not two thoughts there. There's one thought, a man who's dying, and as a result, he's despairing. And any Hebrew scholar will tell you that, and some people separate those. Oh, you know, he's depressed, so give him strong drink. No, it's a dying slash despairing person. And on those occasions, God says that you can give someone strong drink. That was their morphine of the day. I just came from a home last week with someone on a morphine drip because of the pain that they are in. That's an act of compassion. That's an act of mercy. And that is far different than trying to give someone a morphine drip to get a buzz, to get a high. And that person wasn't high. It, does, it has a totally different effect on the body when the body is racked with pain. So, again, I don't know if this is the same caller. The initial caller seemed to me like he was looking for a reason why he can smoke dope. And listen, if you don't have ears to hear this, you probably have an unregenerate mind. People know truth when they hear it. And people who are not regenerate, who do not have the mind of Christ, can't embrace truth. And so when you see people buying into heresy, it's usually because they don't have the ability to discern between truth and error. And uh, But when they hear truth from God's Word, which is really our plumb line, then it gives them direction, and they're able to embrace it and see the reality of it.
0: Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our first caller, a live caller this morning that dictated their question, says that in the study of Revelation, uh, we refer back to the book of Daniel. And this caller wonders, why wasn't Revelation written so we can understand it better? Well,
1: it's written so we can understand it. All, all Scripture is profitable, and in, in giving that uh, description of Scripture tells us that it, in some sense, is understandable. Now, I should say, and this is important, that while the Reformers affirm the perspicuity of Scripture, that is, that the Scripture can be understood by the average person. And that was a radical thought in light of Roman Catholicism, where they have what they call the magisterium of the church. And they say, well, you shouldn't really read the Scripture in terms of interpreting it because you don't have that ability. That contradicts scores of passages in God's Word that tell you that you can understand it. You're commanded to read it. You're commanded to study it. And of course, it's not until... Uh, Really, the 60s and 70s were some translations, really paraphrased translations come out that are so popular and so widespread that you have Catholics for the first time reading the Bible. And when I was a young child, we were told, don't you read the Bible. Only the church can interpret the Bible for you. And really, that was the function of the Bible in our home. It was on a table, and it was there to put your hand on it, to swear to tell the truth, but not to really read it or to study it and that's really consistent even to this day because they say that no scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation and that's peter writing that and giving a description of what the uh, of giving a description of the bible itself but that is a verse that has been grossly taken out of its context. When Peter says that no scripture, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. That's where they stop, the Roman church. They stop right there. And they say, there he is, the first pope, telling us that no scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Therefore, only the church can properly, technically the magisterium of the church, only the church can properly interpret the Bible for you. And that's just not true. Uh, The rest of the verse says, for no prophecy, verse 21, the verse that follows, was ever made by an act of human will. His point is, is that Scripture didn't originate with man, it originated with God. So while the Reformers affirm your need to study the Scripture because it is understandable, neither did they dismiss the fact that there is a process of growth in which Uh, we are able to receive more and more spiritual truth. The term milk is used in two ways in the New Testament. It's used in terms of simple biblical truths. And so Paul said, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able. When he writes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's reminding the Corinthians that as brand new Christians, he didn't start with Revelation, so to speak, the first book of the Bible that Every new believer wants to study, and that's. And I'm not saying he shouldn't study it, a new believer, but there's a lot of deep uh, thought in meat truth, as we would call it, in Revelation. So the fact that Paul says, "I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it." That is, as new believers, I gave you the milk truths of God's Word because there's meteor truths that are difficult to digest. And it's just like with a baby in the physical realm and the parallels between the physical body and the spiritual body is often used in the Word of God. Um, You don't start a baby on steak. You start a baby on milk and you graduate, graduate them to soft foods and eventually they take solids. And that is a process and the same is true in the spiritual realm. So God describes not only milk in terms of simple truths, and He should also we should also highlight that He describes milk in ter- in a different way uh, in First Peter chapter two, where He says, "Putting aside and lists these different sins: malice, deceit, hypocrisy. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word." Now He's not calling them newborn babies; He is saying you're to be hungry like a newborn baby and you are to hunger for the pure milk of the word. It's a word that means the unadulterated um, word of God. There's a purity to God's truth. Uh, It's true in 100% of the time, and we're to long for it. So there he's not using the term milk in terms of simple truth, but the purity of God's word. So, with that said, when, to, to answer your question, you know, why wasn't Re- Revelation written so that we can understand it better? It is written so we can understand it. But there is a process of understanding that God does not dismiss. And so, when you teach your own children mathematics, can they understand calculus? Yes, but not before they understand trigonometry and not before they understand algebra and geometry and not before they understand basic math concepts like the numbers, like addition, like multiplication, like fractions. So there is a basis that you begin with and it graduates and gets more and more difficult. And so the revelation, we're promised that we, it's, in fact, it's the only book, there's a general promise that there's great blessing like in Psalm 1 and other places of whenever you read and study the scripture, but there's only one book in all the Bible where he attaches it specifically to that book. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things that are written in it for the time is near. And so there's an assumption there that you can read it, you can hear it, and you can hear it in a way that you can understand it so that you can heed it. That that is, you can obey it. And there's great blessing in that. But there's a lot of meaty truths here. And much of Revelation indeed is interpreted with Revelation. But let me just say this, that a lot of it is interpreted with the Old Testament. There are hundreds of references to the Old Testament. Some would put as many as eight hundred references to the Old Testament. I would say they're double counting. You know, if uh, the New Covenant is taught in Jeremiah and it's also taught in Ezekiel and it's also co- co- taught in Isaiah, you could say, well, there's three times that it's taught. Now it's taught even many more times than that. Uh, but the but the concept is is taught. You know, you could say once, and so there's over four hundred direct allusions to the Old Testament without ever quoting a single passage. So when you come into the Revelation, it doesn't say, well, Moses says, or Isaiah says, or Jeremiah says, or King David said. There's just an assumption that you have a certain understanding of God's Word. That requires study. That requires commitment to God's Word. And there's no question that the book of daniel is one of the keys to understanding the revelation and so usually in any evangelical seminary that's worth its salt that even studies bible prophecy daniel revelation are always taught together usually it's the same course because daniel gives the prophetic schematic for understanding revelation it's not written just for revelation it's written for many other portions of scripture as well but Revelation that focuses most of the book beginning in chapter 4, the after-these-things portion from 4 all the way through 22, which is futuristic, um, since so much of one book, more is found in Revelation on future things than any other book of the Bible. Therefore, Daniel, that has a major f- focus and gives a prophetic schematic on understanding end times events, especially as it relates to Israel, becomes very um, critical to understanding the book. So, you know, sometimes we're we're lazy. We want to go right to calculus. And I'm not saying this of the caller at all. They're asking a fair and legitimate question. But sometimes as Christians, we're lazy and we we just want to know calculus. We just want to know revelation right off. No, there's a process to get there. And that's why I am painstakingly working through Revelation so that even the new Christian who's willing to go back and study and I review and rehash and and interpret and interface with the Old Testament all the way through, um, you know, I'm committed to helping God's people get it. And again, let me just say, too, that while the Bible teaches the perspicuity of Scripture, that Scripture is understandable, uh, that God's people can read read it and learn it. Neither does it dismiss that there are teachers in the church. And so, for instance, in in 1 John chapter uh, 2, he says, uh, speaking of false teachers, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They went out so that it be shown that they are not all of us, uh, not of us. So there are these teachers who come into the church And John argues the fact that they did not persevere and ended up renouncing the faith shows that they were never really born again to begin with. But then he says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son, And uh, and then he says in verse 24, as for you, let that abide in you, which you've heard from the beginning. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Spirit. So he's he's giving these balancing truths of the fact that there is false teachers, but you have an anointing. And then he'll say that you have no need of anyone to teach you. Uh, As for you, the anointing which you received abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, wait a minute, John. What do you mean you have, we have no need of anyone to teach us? God raises up shepherds in the church. Peter was affirmed uh, three times by Christ that he can show his love for the Lord Jesus by feeding the sheep, by shepherding the flock, by teaching them the word of God. God raises up teachers in the body of Christ, Paul argues in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, to equip the church for the work of the ministry. Romans 12 echoes the same truth. Um, so uh, in John, when he says this, he's teaching them that they have no need of a teacher. What's his point? His point is is that in the end, because like Paul says, we have the mind of Christ, when you hear truth, you know it. God uses teachers in the process to unfold it. But if you have the mind of Christ, that is, you've been a regenerated person and you're growing, you'll be able to absorb more and more of the truth. You'll know it when it's true. You'll know it when it's false. Anyway, let's go on.
0: Okay. As a follow-up to that, uh, is there perhaps some commentary that you might recommend to better help understand the book of the Revelation?
1: Well, uh, again, you might want to first listen to my opening message on the Revelation because I go through different approaches that people have taken in the last 2,000 years, especially uh, since the time of Augustine who lives in the fourth century uh, because th- by the way, there was a unanimity of how to approach the revelation in the early centuries. Uh, they saw Revelation 119 as the divine outline and that when Christ said, you know write the things that you have seen which he does in chapter 1 and write the things that are, that he does in chapters 2 and 3, and then write the things after these things, that chapter 4, that twice over in four one, the word metatata, after these things is repeated, he's dealing with the futuristic section of the book of the Revelation. In fact, it's a phrase, metatata, that's repeated several times all the way through the book. And so I noted in the opening sermon, that because of some theological presuppositions that some people start with, namely, that the church is a new Israel, that God is done with national Israel, that there's no future for the Jew, therefore the promises that were made to the Jewish people concerning a coming kingdom where Messiah will literally rule upon the earth, etc., etc., have all been forfeited, that the church has now replaced Israel. That uh, teaching really was popularized by Augustine, and Augustine taught that the church was the new Israel, and he planted the seeds for Roman Catholicism, in which the Roman Catholic Church taught, and I will continue to deal with this in our study of the Revelation, not to attach Catholics, but to help you to know where where are they are coming from and where this whole thing is headed in the future. I mean, it's incredible what we are seeing in our day, even by the current Pope and his view of other religions and his willingness to embrace. Rick sent me this morning at 5.30 a, a meeting the Pope had with uh, the Mormon leaders just recently, and... Uh, Uh, What is so amazing is that the Pope brought all these Mormon leaders into the Vatican, received an icon from the Mormons of their – a larger statue that they have built there in Rome. They gave him a miniature, and he embraced them, and, you know, that's embracing heresy people who deny the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ and salvation by grace and the virgin birth. Oh, welcome, welcome, welcome. He should have said, you guys are heretics, you're leading people to hell. But he didn't do that because, and he gave them at that meeting, by the way, the document that he just signed with the Muslim equivalent of the Pope and the Grand Iman of all the Iman's and he gave them a copy of that document that in it says that god has willed all the religions of the world well that denies what jesus said that he is the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but by him and so um there's real heresy here and so my point is is in the opening sermon uh, there is a futuristic view, which is the traditional view of how to interpret Revelation, but there's also called the preterist view from the Latin word praetor that means past. And so they look at Revelation 4 all the way through 18, with the exception of the second coming of Christ and the fact that God has created a heaven, they see it as all historical. They see um, someone actually even name the Antichrist to be Nero, uh, they see the tribulation period is all already taken place. So in the end, there's just the second coming of Christ. There's one big general judgment, which really denies the clarity of Revelation 20, 11 through 15, uh, where at the great white throne judgment, the only people who are present are lost. They're actually, we're going to go through a number of judgments. There's a total of seven judgments in the Word of God of one kind or another. And so it denies all this. It just generalizes prophecy. That's the preterist view. And there's a lot of people who have adopted preterism uh, because out of Roman Catholicism came a number of Protestant reformers. And they, uh, some of them viewed revelation as historical, as already, already taken place. Or, or some took what's not called the preterist view, but the historical view, that is to say that revelation is being fulfilled in the church age. And so Martin Luther argued that they were in the tribulation period while he was alive, that the pope was the Antichrist in his day. Well, obviously he was proven wrong. We're not in the tribulation, and the pope of his day was not the Antichrist. So and then there's a spiritual view that just—, just Allegorizes the whole book, and you could also argue for the allegorical view. So, um, the futuristic view, I believe, is the view that Christ took because he connected the future events that are described in the Revelation with his own second coming to the earth. He said, When you see the abomination of desolation written by the prophet Daniel, and that's why I say it is so critical to understand Daniel, to understand Revelation. then beware. And of course, the events that are described lead directly to his coming back to the earth. So any commentary that you get, you want to get a commentary in Revelation that deals with a futuristic interpretation. John Walvard wrote an excellent one uh on Revelation. Walvard, W A L V O O R D. Um there's a two volume series, too, called The Bible Knowledge Commentary. He was the general editor. And it's on all 66 books of the Bible, and you could um, go to half.com and get those two books for a fraction of the price. They're like 150 bucks new for the pair, but you could probably find them for $30 used. And, um, but you have even in that his commentary in Revelation, but it is reduced in size. So it is compressed a little bit. But if you just type in half.com, Revelation, John Walford, you'll find it used. It's been in print for 30 years. you probably get it for $5 plus shipping. If you buy it new, it's like 50 bucks. So that would be an excellent one. And I would say it's very good because um, it's what you call a non-critical commentary. A lot of the commentaries, I have like 30 commentaries on Revelation. Um, but most of them are what you call critical commentaries, that is, they're interacting with the original language. And so if you don't know Greek, you're going to be very frustrated. But he does an excellent job in his commentary, and that he has interacted with the critical commentaries. will often footnote those, and, um, and yet he's giving a very scholarly approach to the whole thing. So I hope that helps.
0: alright two five one eight five nine. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we've got a live caller standing by, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Um, hi. Yeah, I have a question. I just actually walked out of a Bible study. I felt very uncomfortable. They were talking about manual approach training. Is that just a weird vibe that I have, or have you heard anything about this?
1: Emmanuel approach training. Uh, what yeah. what kind of things were they telling you uh, in reference to that? I mean, what were they telling you about Emmanuel approach training that gave you some uh, reservations, so to speak? Hello. Well, you was, still, yeah. Go ahead. I'm um, sorry. I didn't know if you were still there. Can you still hear me? Yes, I can. Go ahead.
2: It was, uh, they were just saying that you have things that, that have been staying with you in your mind since childhood that are keeping you from having a really close relationship with the Lord and that you somehow need to deal with these things through this training. I don't really, yeah. I didn't really understand it. I just made me feel very uncomfortable that I had to use this psychiatric training to understand why I don't have a closer relationship with the Lord when I, f- it just didn't make sense.
1: Right. Right. It's, um, I think it's very dangerous. It's basically psychology that is coming to the church and there's a guy, not the famous Dr. Lehman, but another Dr. Lehman, L-E-H-M-A-N, who has promoted this, uh, approach to, uh, dealing in the sanctification process that you have to go back, uncover the deep hidden secrets of your life, Uh, to deal with these things in order to uh, move forward in Christ, and and I don't think that's true. Uh, I think that God's Word teaches that Christ is sufficient and the Holy Spirit who works in you if there's an issue in your past, and usually it's either A, guilt that we have to address, or it is B, something that someone has done to us that we have to address in terms of forgiveness or sometimes bringing into sync, where was God when that event happened to me? So um, his approach, uh, Dr. Lehman's approach to dealing with the past, let's say if a woman was abused by an uncle or even their own father, uh, and how to deal with that would be, I think, very different from how I would deal with it. Uh, Because I think what we are to do is to bring into line, you know, where was God and how do you address that and the issues of free will and why bad things happen to good people and address it biblically rather than psychology. So I I think the whole approach is is wrong. It's an approach to, um, you know, getting, you know, emotional wholeness through modern psychology and bleeding it with scripture. And it's pure cycle babble. And I think this goes back to what I said earlier, um, from first John chapter three, where he says, as for you, the anointing, which you receive from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you all things and is true and is not a lie, he is reminding these that he is writing in this first epistle to John, I'm quoting chapter 2, where false teachers had come into the church, and they were basically uh, refuting biblical uh, doctrine that had come down through the apostles, and John is just reminding them, hey, listen, you know truth when you hear truth. He's not dismissing the fact that there are teachers in the body of Christ cuz he is teaching them that they have no need for a teacher. So he's employing one of his gifts as an apostle. But what he is saying is that when you hear someone preach and there's a huge reservation in your heart, that's God's spirit creating that doubt, that reservation in your heart that what you're hearing is an untruth. And the fact that you um, had that huge reservation without necessarily being able to put your finger on it. Uh, it was a good sign that God's Spirit One is working in you. And yeah, so th- that's not a Bible study. That's psychology brought into the realm of the Bible. And so now we're reading the Bible through the lens of psychology rather than reading psychology through the lens of the Bible. And that's very, very dangerous. So. um it's not a healthy movement uh, that is unfolding in our country in different places. In, in, is this in Beaufort County, if, I'm, if, I, if I may ask?
2: Yeah, it was, and it's at a Bible study that I attend regularly that's really good, but the regular teacher wasn't there, and someone was filling in, and I just felt pure evil in the room. It had to get out. I mean, it was...
1: Yeah, That's not. it's not good. It's, it was it, awful. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. Yeah, do you attend that no. church? Do you attend that no. church? Are you a member Pardon? of that church? I say, are you a member of that church where the Bible study was held?
2: No, it's actually at someone's home, and I do go to CBC Community Bible Church, so I get my teaching from you, and I just yeah. I feel like I do have the gift of discernment, and I just became more and more uncomfortable, and I feel like I should have spoken up, and I didn't. I kind of did, but then I just thought, i got to get out of here, and I just, I had to get out. <laughs> It was awful.
1: Yeah, you can uh, Google, like, uh, a manual approach training, and you'll you'll see a number of good articles that have been written on it by uh, different organizations that monitor cults and false teachings in the church. And uh, I gave you the short answer, but, yeah, you had some reservation. And even if someone doesn't have the gift of discernment, Uh, 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 an expression of maturity in the Christian life, according to the book of Hebrews, um, when, again, this is a huge problem in our day, is that people no longer uh, are growing because they're not uh, being taught biblical truth. And he says solid food is for the mature. Again, we just, if you were listening earlier, talking about the difference between meat truth and milk truth, solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, that is, they've taken the Word of God and they have put it into shoe leather. Uh, The word here for for practice is uh, an interesting word, and they have trained their senses. The word trained is gymnastio. We get our word gymnasium. That is, they've taken the truth and they've exercised it in their life such that they can discern good and evil. So while some people have the gift of discerning spirits, All Christians are to show discernment, and the way you get discernment is learning the Word of God and putting it into shoe leather. So, you know, when um, I am in a situation like that, if I felt like I missed something, you know, someone taught me as a new Christian, uh, just pray, Lord, I, I should have spoken up. I'm sorry. Make me sharper next time. Or maybe uh, I'm in a witnessing scene situation, and I later realize, oh, I should have said such and such to this person. I'll say, Lord, uh, help me, make me sharper next time that I don't miss that. And God has a way of really honoring that as we humble ourselves before Him. And uh, so, yeah, you should go back and speak up and. Uh, research a little bit this week and maybe even give them some articles. And if you need some help on that, I'll give you some help. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next caller.
0: All right. Very good. We had a caller dictate their question, and it also is very close to an email question we had. So I'm going to ask them both. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, The the caller wanted to know um, if you're visiting a church and a woman pastor starts to preach the word, which we know is not a woman's role in the church, Should we get up and leave or stay and listen? And then Jamie from Cleveland, Ohio writes, I am attending a church where the pastor and his wife are both called pastors. I learned that a woman has a different role in the church and she can't be a pastor. They seem to be okay with everything else, but this bothers me. Is this a reason to leave a church? And then another concern Jamie has is uh, the same pastor mentioned Andy Stanley and T.D. Jakes in a positive light. Should I talk to him?
1: Well, you know, um, Andy Stanley is way off, and I've never allowed his Bible studies to be used at Community Bible Church in any of our Sunday morning studies, ever, because he's way off. And of course, the statements that he's made in the last year, especially in terms of his view of the Old Testament, are way off. If you want to read a good article, Denny Burke, who's a professor at Southern Seminary, Wrote an excellent article. Just type in Denny Burke, D E N N Y Burke, Southern Seminary, Andy Stanley. And he wrote a superb article basically taking Andy Stanley's own words about what he says concerning the Old Testament and what the Lord Jesus says. And so Andy Stanley is very dangerous. And so when people are quoting Andy Stanley, um, they're quoting now what I consider a dangerous teacher. Now, listen, he went to the same seminary I did. He went to Dallas Theological Seminary, but Dallas Theological Seminary is adrift. And they are they are slipping as a seminary, and they're moving in the wrong direction. Uh, T.D. Jakes, he's a oneness Pentecostal, so he denies the historical definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. He does not teach three co-equal co-eternal persons. Now he would say the father is equal to the son and to the spirit, but at different times they become different persons. So the father one day becomes the son, the son another day becomes the spirit, the spirit another day becomes the father. So he denies the historical biblical uh, definition of Trinitarianism that there are three co-equal, co-eternal persons And so that's very, very dangerous. And there was a seminar done some years ago in the elephant room, and he was confronted on this, and he he just didn't have ears to hear it. And add to that, you know, the whole money-grubbing thing uh, that has happened in his church, it's not healthy. It's not a picture of healthy Christianity. And neither is it healthy when you have a woman pastor. That's against God's Word. It's going against the clear teaching of what God has said. And so they're saying, you know, that a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man, that that only applied in that particular historical situation, maybe because there were some problems in the church at Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring. But Paul goes back to the order of creation and to the unfolding of the fall, and then in addition to the role that God has given women. So what I would say to both of these people, to the caller who just called in and the person who emailed in from where, Ohio, or yeah, Um, from,
0: let's see, Cleveland. Yeah, yeah.
1: Cleveland, Ohio, that they should go back and listen to my messages on 1 Timothy 2, uh, 12 through 15, because I go through really over two hours of teaching, and I go through every single passage, Old and New Testaments, that people pop up to say, hey, listen, God has called me to be a preacher. So you've got some woman who says, well, God's called me to, to teach at this conference over a man. He hasn't called you. God's will never contradicts his word. And they use these passages out of context. What about Deborah? What about the seven daughters of Philip? What about, you know, Miriam, Moses' sister, and all these verses out of context. And I go through every passage that they use, the Christian feminist, so to speak, to argue and to affirm, and Rick just brought up on the internet that T.D. Jakes is evolving on gay rights. That's another thing. Listen, Andy Stanley has gay couples where you got the male or the female and the opposing partner of the same sex is being baptized, and no one is saying anything, and Christian godly pastors in the city of Atlanta has confronted him, and he's done nothing. Look, um. He's a dangerous teacher. He's a dangerous teacher, and there's a growing movement of apostasy that is taking place around the country. So, on this issue of women pastors, listen to my two hour plus of teaching on First Timothy two. You can get it at searchthescriptures dot org. You can get a phone app if you go to the app store. Just type in search the scriptures. It's the first one to pop up. Download it on your phone. Listen to it while you're driving in the car, cutting the grass, whatever you're doing and listen to those messages, I think you will be helped greatly.
0: And if you are caught unawares attending a Sunday service and a woman gets up to preach, do you get up and leave?
1: I would. You know, why would I want to put my kids? It would be no different. It would be no different than if a a, a, a pastor got up to argue for a homosexual lifestyle. It's, it's just sheer error, and it's really—I and, it's really, and I would never— be in a church as a member there, I would leave that church. That's reason to leave. This is not some secondary issue. This is a clear violation of the roles that God has given men and women to play. And when you put your children in that kind of church, you feminize your little boys. And we got too many effeminate boys in Christianity today. And part of it is because we have women who have usurped the roles of men, men who have acquiesced their roles, and moms— and older women who are not really doing what God has called them to do. And and this has opened the door to gross apostasy. You can look at every major Protestant denomination, and the first thing that they slipped on was the role of men and women in the church, and it was a short slope from there to uh, come into embracing homosexuality as an
0: alternative lifestyle. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. I have a question about Saul's conversion, Acts 9. Of course, uh, uh, how Saul became Paul, and and, uh, he was let down in a basket after a fashion went into Jerusalem and so on. then in Galatians 1, it sounds like he immediately, after his conversion, got up and went to not to Jerusalem, but went to the desert. It seems like there's a three-year gap in there someplace, if you know what I'm speaking
1: of. Yes, absolutely, yeah. So um, Paul says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. You can read of that where Paul brings, uh, Barnabas brings Paul to the Jerusalem uh, apostles and people are weary and leery of him to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days and so on. So I find that interesting because uh, just like the disciples had a, you know, three-year postgraduate seminary experience with the Savior, uh, the Lord gave Paul that same opportunity. So he didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood with other people. He slid into the desert. He studied the Scriptures And we're not told if Christ directly appeared to him like he did on a number of occasions as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles in a dream or a vision or literally physically on the Damascus road as his testimony is recorded in three places in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, The the initial place, of course, being Acts 9 uh, that you're referencing today. But he did clearly uh, study the Scriptures, pore over them, and God spoke to his heart by the Spirit, and he equipped him because Christ had set him apart to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And the, the very truths that he had used to oppose um, Jewish people as what he considered to be absolute heretics, and he was engaged, obviously, even in the st- death of Stephen. They, they set the robes at Paul's feet, which tells you Paul was the leader in that action, he was the one sanctioning the stoning of Stephen, and uh, yet, um, you know, God totally reversed this guy's convictions about Jesus and Christianity, and I think it was in this three-year period uh, that he he was saved before then, obviously, but this was his growth time. This was his seminary experience. Here was a guy who was deeply entrenched in the Scriptures, But he had a false view of how to understand some of those passages as it related to Jesus. And uh, that
0: all changed. But anyway, appreciate the question. All right. Very good. Um, We did get another question via email. Uh, Jim from Bluffton would like to express the following. He says, one of my family members is about to join the Orthodox Church in Beaufort. I I have very little knowledge about that church, but the little I do know has me concerned. I'm hoping you can educate me about this church. If he joins, that will include his wife and six young children.
1: Well, it's a a good question. I don't want to comment specifically on the Orthodox Church in Beaufort. I met, quote-unquote, that priest once. He actually came to a funeral that I was preaching, and I shook his hand, and we didn't really talk for longer than 30 seconds. Not that I didn't want to but i don't think he wanted to speak with me i don't know if he was offended by what i said but I, so i don't i don't want to make a judgment about him in that local church but let me in broad terms talk about the orthodox church not just in america but around the world the orthodox church denies denies penal substitutionary atonement and so in that sense they are not orthodox though Um, So when we talk about orthodoxy, I'm not talking about the large letter O, capital letter O. I'm talking about the small letter O. The large letter O Orthodox Church is not small letter Orthodox. Now, that's not to say that there are not born-again Orthodox priests. There is a man, when I go to the Ukraine and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Churches are the two large... Uh, churches that govern most of the country. I have met, on some rare occasions, some born-again Orthodox priests, but they're very rare. For the most part, uh, throughout Eastern Europe, the Orthodox Church opposes the true church, the evangelical church, the Bible-believing church. And so, as most of you listening to me know who follow the progress of evangelicalism, that is, Bible-believing, born-again Christianity around the world, you will know that President Putin exterminated all missionaries from Russia. Who did he get his counsel from? The Orthodox Church, big old Orthodox Church in Russia. Um, So evangelical missionaries, it's against the law now to be in Russia. Now, there are uh, missionaries who are there, quote-unquote, undercover, Um, but uh, it's against the law for Westerners and other people to come in and try to convert Russians with the gospel. So there's not real religious freedom as we would define it here in the States. And even here in the States, we're beginning to lose some of our religious freedoms because of the antagonistic spirit towards Bible-believing Christians. That's growing. So, um, But with that said, I have on rare occasions, in fact, in New England, there's a ton of Orthodox churches. Apart from Roman Catholics, there's a ton of Orthodox churches. There are Armenian Orthodox, there are Greek Orthodox, there are Russian Orthodox. uh, There is even in Boston now some Ukrainian Orthodox churches because a lot of these people from Eastern Europe have migrated to certain cities, especially on the West Coast. There's a lot of Orthodox churches where Ukrainians and Russians and places like Sacramento and um, Portland and places like that. There's large um, Orthodox populations. There's over like 200,000 Orthodox people, for instance, just in Sacramento alone, where I did a missions conference some some years back. And again, for the most part, they're lost. They do not know the gospel. And apart from that, they're iconoclastic. They are very much involved in the use of icons and worshiping God. But for the most part, they would be very similar to Roman Catholics. They deny salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And if you find an Orthodox Church that embraces that, it's the exception to the rule. So you got to define terms very, very carefully. Now, there's a church, for instance, in Newton, Massachusetts, which is right outside of Boston, It's a Greek Orthodox church, and they've had the gospel for really about four decades now. And so uh, it's very exciting to see that church try to reach some people from from that background. But for the most part, they do not have the gospel. And again, without me making a judgment on that church, because I know it's very small, just a handful of people— and I've not sat down to find out specifically, but I would have huge, huge cautions that I think you already have. So, All
0: right. We've got an amazing opportunity this Friday. I should say women do, don't they? Yes,
1: they, they do. Um, my wife and my daughter, Grace Anna, is putting on a one-night conference at Community Bible Church. What's the title of it, Rick?
0: Well, it's actually a Women's Spring Fellowship, and there won't be a message per se. It's actually an opportunity for women who have questions about whatever's on their heart to find out what uh, Grace Anna and Audrey have from their heart and, of course, from the Bible, God's Word.
1: Many of you have heard them in the studio or sometimes Grace Anna in another location uh, where they do these broadcasts, so they're going to simulate that in a radio studio with questions submitted from the audience. So this is a great opportunity. I invite you to come. Go to communitybiblechurch.us forward slash
0: WSF,
1: Women's Spring Fellowship. WSF, and you can register. It's only $5 It will cover your food. It's going to be a great time. Hope you can come out and join them.